I'm Brett McGarry. This week on The Couch Potatoes, it's the second leg of our year-end review for 2017. I'm Jeff Braun. We're counting down our favorite movies of the year. I'm counting down 10. Brett's doing five because I saw more movies this year, so neener, neener, Brett. Keener. My number 10 is actually a movie that will come up in Brett's top five, so we'll get to that a little later in the show. How's that for a tease? Uh, Number nine for me, a movie called Wonder Woman. Have you never met a man before? I mean, what about your father? I had no father. I was brought to life by Zeus. Well, that's neat. At the beginning of 2017, we would have never guessed that Wonder Woman would be the best DC movie of the batch, but it is. An interesting, well-told, and well-paced story featuring characters we care about, who have clear motivations and human emotions and reactions. What were they thinking? And then there's the action, the best use of slow-mo we've seen in a long while. Makes the fighting among the most stylish of the year. Only a couple of other action or superhero movies that we rank very highly today will match that. We'll get to them later in the show. But while Ben Affleck as Batman was meant to be the glue to all these Justice League movies in the DC Universe, it is Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman who is actually holding it all together. And I second this. I very much enjoyed Wonder Woman. It easily is one of the top ten films of 2017. Yeah, number eight. Eight on my list, fittingly, the f- eight of the Furious. Dominic Toretto just went rogue. There's only two men in the world that have ever tracked Dom, and they're both standing right in front of me. Surprise. There ain't no way in hell that we're working with this tea and crumpets eating criminal. Like it or not, you guys are gonna work together. Yeah, it'd be fun. Love to. This is crazy! Come and get it. What are you waiting for, Toretto? It's part eight of a series, and it's great. That's pretty rare, especially for something that's not based on a series of hit books, but rather based on Vin Diesel's ego. Here he, quote, turns bad, but not really, and they don't really try to make us believe that he has. But he is forced to join up with the bad guy, who's played by Charlize Theron. His old gang tries to track him down, yada, yada, yada. Baby's involved. Kurt Russell returns to Crackwise. And in the most thrilling development, The Rock and Jason Statham star in a prison fight and then team up, possibly the most entertaining on-screen pairing of the year. Paul Walker was greatly missed, but... The Fate of the Furious was big, dumb fun, and that's all we're really after here. Number seven on my list, T2. But not that T2, this one's Train Spotting 2. Missed you, man. I missed you too, Spud. Choose your future. Choose wishing you'd done it all differently. Choose life. 20 years just flown by, eh? Train Spotting 2 is the sequel we never knew we needed. When I first heard about it, I thought, wait, what? Why on earth would that movie need a sequel? Then the trailer came out and I almost cried. It hit the nostalgia buttons in just the right way, making me desperately crave a movie that had almost no business being made. The result was fantastic. Nothing groundbreaking like the original, but a very enjoyable trip back to a world I never knew I wanted to revisit. Everyone involved was clearly very game to make a good movie, especially director Danny Boyle, who brought some pretty amazing visual flair to the proceedings. And hopefully in 20 years, they'll go back and make it a trilogy. I have had 
T2 train spotting sitting on my PVR for a couple of months now, along oh, yeah. with the first train spotting because I can't watch the second one. Till you refresh yourself. Because I've only seen train spotting one time. And, <laughs> and that was, was 1996. Uh, yeah, I think I watched it in 96 <laughs> or 97. So for all intents and purposes, when I watch train spotting again, it will be like watching it for the very first time. That's good. You got a, you got a nice double bill in your future somewhere. One, one day I will find time and make the time and enjoy it. Uh, number six on my list is a movie called The Florida Project. The man who lives in here gets arrested a lot. These are the rooms we're not supposed to go in. But let's go anyway. <laughs> Could you give us some change, please? The doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream yeah. right away. Here you go. <laughs> let's go, come on. Have a nice day. I love you, too. Willem Dafoe is the Oscar favorite in the Best Supporting Actor category as the mild-mannered, but not a pushover, manager of a dive motel just outside Disney World in Florida. The poor kids who live in the hotel, they're one step away from being homeless, but they'll never see Disney World, and they don't even really know that their lives are sad. They're kids, and they find a way to have fun regardless of their situation. The ending is poetic, if not entirely a crowd-pleaser, but it's Defoe's performance as the good guy in a sad world that deservedly gets the attention, and hey, it's noteworthy enough for the simple fact he's playing a good guy. Those roles seem to be few and far between in the career of Willem Defoe, which is too bad because the Florida Project shows he can deliver. Number five on my list, it's a horror movie. It's called Get Out. I'm bringing you home. How bad can it be? Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Get out. Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. I would have voted for Obama for a third term. Get out. Something is weird. It's the people. Get out. Something wrong. I can't move. You've been chosen. If you would have told me at the beginning of 2017 that a horror movie would make my top 10 list, I'd have said you're crazy. Heck, even if you said I would see a horror movie this year, I wouldn't have believed you. I have a well-documented history on the show of being a fraidy cat, right, Brett? Wimp. I know. Nevertheless, I saw it this year, enjoyed most of that. Still have the occasional nightmare, though. But it was Get Out that really impressed me. Now, you can argue it's not an actual horror movie. In fact, the phrase coined to describe it is social thriller. Comedian Jordan Peele of Key and Peele fame wrote and directed this story about a young black man visiting his white girlfriend's parents' country house for the weekend and encountering some extreme racism. Everything starts out all smiles, but ends in horror. It is a brilliantly told story about modern day racism, which is often accompanied with a smile. It's also a bona fide thriller. There were a few instances where I blurted out no in shock or resigned disbelief of what was happening. Get Out really is its own special little thing. One of the year's most pleasant surprises. I agree with you, Jeff. Uh, this would, uh, if I was doing a top 10, Get Out would be on my list as well. Uh, that's one of the reasons why also I'm only doing five because Wonder Woman would be on yeah, there. Yeah, got some overlap. Get Out would be on there. There's Fate at least of the Furious would be number one for you. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I, I, I was, I didn't quite like the eight as much as you did, but it was still pretty cool. But Get Out, yeah, I didn't see it in theater. I saw it at home, and it was a real thrill. 
despite the fact that uh, it had been so hyped by anybody who'd seen it, yep. the fact that it was all, uh, briefly 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, it's hard to go into a film like this with that much, yeah. that high level of expectation and still be blown away by it. That is true. It's Yeah, it's so much easier when I see something like The Florida Project where it's like, well, all I've heard is that Willem Dafoe is good in it. You know what I mean? Yep. But with Get Out, I mean, I did see it in theater, but the hype had already, I only went because of the hype. I was like, well, this movie's making all sorts of waves. I got to see it and hopefully I won't be too scared. And I wasn't. It was okay. Yeah, it was uh, genuinely imaginative. And I think that's one of the things I loved about it. It was so creative and imaginative and yet a throwback to other stories that we've seen in the past uh, like the Stepford Wives so and uh, a second time around I would highly recommend because once you know what's up and then you watch that movie again it's like holy smokes like I think uh, Jordan Peele's working on all sorts of different levels in that movie yeah it's excellent you should watch Get Out if you have not done so yet up next on our Couch Potatoes year end review looking at our favorite movies of 2017 I'll weigh in I will talk about a war movie that's usually Jeff's bag isn't yeah. it give you those details up next you're listening to the Couch Potatoes Brett McGarry Jeff Braun we are the Couch Potatoes it's the second part of our year end review of 2017 this week we are doing our favorite movies of 2017 Jeff's doing 10 I'm only doing 5 because there is a fair amount of overlap I'll just quickly recap or do you want to recap what you've done so far here Jeff oh sure I just got to turn your microphone yeah on. that would help uh, my number 10 oh my Number 10 was a secret because it's coming up deep into your list. For number 9, I had Wonder Woman, followed by The Fate of the Furious. At number 7, I had Train Spotting 2. At number 6, The Florida Project. And at number 5, Get Out, and which you enjoyed as well. I really did. I also quite enjoyed Wonder Woman and... Uh you're number 10, as you pointed out. And I, I did like the fate of the Furious, as you called it, but not not enough to get on a top 10, but that, that franchise is always your thing anyway. Mm-hmm. As This is also your thing as well. Normally, Jeff does the war movies, so this feels kind of weird. Yeah. But this year, I saw and really liked Dunkirk. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Directed by Christopher Nolan, this film is about the World War II evacuation of Allied troops in Dunkirk, France, also known as Operation Dynamo, or the Miracle of Dunkirk. With a German war machine closing in around them, British troops, French troops, Belgian troops, and Canadian troops all had to amass on the beach and just wait to be picked up and hope that they don't get picked off by German planes. Where are we going? Dunkirk. I'm not going back. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go there, we'll die. The film focuses primarily on the British soldiers with some French ones thrown in. The ensemble cast includes Kenneth Branagh, Tom Hardy, Cillian Murphy, is it, or is it Killian? I think it's Killian. I always get that one wrong. Yeah, right. And Mark Rylance, did I say that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just to name a few of the people in this film. You can practically see it from here. What? Home. 
Oh, yeah. The cast also includes Harry Styles. Oh, there you go. The pop star oh, from the God. boy band One Direction. He's now a solo artist, but he's in a serious war movie. Surprisingly, he was actually pretty good in is, his is role. Is his music in the movie? No, his music oh. is not in the movie, which I'm sure was a disappointment to the two teenage girls who were sitting beside <laughs> me in the movie theater. They they came only to see him in the movie. I imagine the score was like a relentless Hunt Zimmer. Yeah, Rob, yeah. I, I don't know. I'll tell is that his name? Is that the guy who did the Batmans with him and stuff? Yeah, usually yeah. they work together. Um, but yeah, the movie was short and sweet, coming in at an hour 45. The film follows three separate stories, one on the ground, one at sea, and one in the air. And it is completely immersive. You feel like you're right there in the mix. And it's scary. It's an important film to see, and given there are no American forces in this film, I'm surprised it did so well in North America. $188 million, not too bad. No. It's on my list. I've actually got the Blu-ray sitting on a shelf at home. Just way to go. I just wanted... I, I know that it's going to... I'm going to enjoy it, so I want to... I don't want to just, like, Saturday morning watch it while I'm eating breakfast kind of deal. I want to make a whole night of it. For sure. So, looking forward to Dunkirk. Number four on my list is Spider-Man Homecoming. Finally, here we go. Good evening, Peter. Oh. You have 576 possible web shooter combinations. That is awesome. I can keep that suit? Yeah, doesn't fit me. So when's our next retreat? What, next mission? We'll call you, all right? That's not a hug, I'm just grabbing the door for you. We're not there yet. All right, kid, good luck out there. Honestly, it was just nice to see a legit good Spider-Man movie once again. This is easily the best since 2004's Spider-Man 2. That was the Doc Ock one. Spider-Man 3 sucked. The first Amazing Spider-Man was good, but not great. And the second Amazing Spider-Man is among the worst superhero movies I've ever seen. Spider-Man Homecoming resurrected the Web Slinger. Well, the work really started in last year's Captain America Civil War, where Spidey made an appearance. That helped erase the need for much of an introduction in Homecoming. There's no origin story. At one point, they cut mid-conversation to Peter Parker's friend Ned saying, So you got bit by a spider and now you have powers? And that's it. And thank God. Spider-Man, Superman, and Batman never have to have origin stories in movies ever again, as far as I'm concerned. They've all had plenty. What Spider-Man Homecoming does have, what we have not seen in a long time, is a sense of humor and a sense of what it's actually like to be in high school. And weirdly enough, a sense of neighborhood, which is what you want in a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. The party scene that turns into an action scene about midway through, all in the suburbs, which I found a lot more relatable than the usual swinging around Manhattan skyscrapers. It was also weirdly more cozy. Uh, Michael Keaton is the bad guy. A lot of fun. The twist with his character on Homecoming Night was very unexpected, at least to me. I found it a little unsettling in a good bad guy menacing kind of way. I actually gasped in the theater when it happened. Um, there were a lot of good superhero movies this year, but I would say Spider-Man Homecoming was my favorite. And actually, as you read this, or as we came upon this film in your list, I realized, oh yeah, that's another movie that would have been yeah. on my top ten because I gave that uh, uh, fairly glowing review. I think four and a half couch cushions out of five. Spider-Man is my favorite hero in all of comicdom. So I was excited to see a good Spider-Man film again like you. I really like Tom Holland. Yeah. I don't know that I'd go... So far as to say this is the best Spider-Man film ever, no. but he is the best Spider-Man we have seen on film, I think. Yeah, I th um, that Spider-Man 2 is still awfully good, eh? Spider-Man 2, yeah, I think that might be the, the benchmark. And uh, But again, that was like 2004. It has been 13 years since we've seen anything 
close to that good, I would say. Oh, for sure. Yeah, this was fun. And I think of all of the Spider-Man films we've seen on screen, this one uh, easily does the best job at capturing the spirit of Spider-Man, which yeah. is a wisecracking teenager. For sure. And uh, he has fun while he's doing it, and as a result, so do we. I do bristle a little at him sort of having to be second fiddle in the Avengers. Like, he's to me, he's the main guy at Marvel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he's got, you know, Iron Man's his boss, and all these other guys are clearly his elders. I guess that's just an age thing, so... Yeah, I don't know how much of that is influenced from the comic books because I know that in uh, more recent years in the comics over the last decade or so, decade-ish, Iron Man and Spider-Man have worked very closely together. It also has to do with the fact, though, that Sony has the rights and they've cut this deal with Marvel where they can kind of share the character. It just, yeah, oh, for the movie, it's just the way it sort of panned out because they'd already set up all this other stuff so you couldn't really ignore it. So, yeah, it's just the way it worked out. It It just seems odd to me that he's, like, taking orders from other guys. Up next, I'll talk about a film, one of the other horror films that Jeff Braun has seen this year. Give you the details on it. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he is Brett, and we are counting down our favorite movies of 2017. So far, we've looked at things like Wonder Woman, The Fate of the Furious, uh, Train Spotting 2, The Florida Project, Get Out, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Dunkirk. We are on to Brett's fourth favorite movie of the year. Brett, what is it? The big screen adaptation of a beloved scary book, Stephen King's It. Grandfather thinks this town is cursed. That all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing. An evil thing. The movie is set in Derry, Maine in the late 1980s and is about a group of kids called the Losers Club who discover that kids have started to go missing, so they do some investigating. It is Pennywise the Clown. At least that's how it likes to manifest itself for the most part. It's an evil entity that feeds on fear. I saw something. A clown. Yeah, I saw him too. The book was released in 1986, a beastly novel at over 1,100 pages. It was adapted into a TV miniseries in 1990 with Tim Curry playing the clown. This new one features Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise and a bunch of solid actor kids, including Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. When the first teaser debuted in 2017, it was viewed a record number of times in the first 24 hours. It looked good and it looked scary. As it turns out, I was actually disappointed by the scary factor in this film. I think it could have been scarier, although I just should just get a second opinion from Jeff no, Brown. it was plenty, plenty scary enough, buddy boy. <laughs> For me, I think it was, uh, there was some bad CG that always ruins scary stuff. I do not like CG in horror films. Really? Yeah, because it, it, it when it's done, if it's done well, yeah. fine. But if it's bad, and in this case it was kind of herky-jerky at, at times. Oh, really? It just takes me right out of the scene. I didn't notice, but I was also looking away a lot, so <laughs> I, I may have missed some of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was still very good, though. The film was really good, thanks mostly to the wonderful performances from the young cast. It was one of the biggest movies of the year, too. $327 million domestic, to put it at number five on the annual chart. It Chapter 2, by the way, debuts September 2019. <laughs> Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. 
Yeah, you mentioned, like, the kids were really solid in it, and I remember thinking, boy, if it wasn't for the horror part of this movie, I would really like this movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> if it wasn't legit horror movie, I would have loved this movie, because it had, like, a, well, I, I want to say, like, a Stand By Me vibe in it, but obviously, because that's a Stephen King thing, that's just how he rolls, yeah. and all his stuff is always set sort of in the same, with the same scenery, right? Same part of the country, so. I remember, like, man, this would be, like, a good Stand By Me too if it weren't for that damn clown. <laughs> Would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for that blasted clown. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. I'm I'm glad I saw it, and now you know I'm. I guess I have to see the sequel because it's that part of me that's the completest. You know, <laughs> you got to put yourself through the pain just to oh, complete it. I might wait for it to be on video, though. Don't need to people wait, wait for it to air on broadcast television uh, in like the year 2025 yeah. when they cut out all the scary stuff. That'd be <laughs> yeah. awesome. Somebody uh, could make a living editing horror movies to take out the scary stuff. I'd watch them. There you go. Business idea. Somebody do it. <laughs> Number three on my list. Something not scary at all. It's delightful. It's called Ladybird. Well, I I saw your Thanksgiving show. My name's Ladybird. It's weird you shake hands. Yeah. I'm friends with Jenna, and she's always talking about how great your band is, so I wanted to check it out. Yeah, Jenna's all tight. Yeah. Maybe I'll see you at the Deuce or something, huh? Sure. See you at the Deuce. Hey! I'm not paying you to flirt. I wasn't flirting. She had been. Actress Greta Gerwig wrote the story and makes her directorial debut, and it'll be tough to top. There's nothing particularly flashy or gimmicky about Lady Bird. It's just solid craftsmanship from someone who clearly had a vision of what they wanted and pulled it off. Although I think if you did a scene count, you might find there are more scenes in most movies. About two-thirds of the way through, I sort of realized there were a lot of very, very short scenes. It was effective. The movie feels like it just cooks along. There's no padding or unnecessary anything. The quick pace keeping your attention, always a good thing. And a short, it's just... About 90 minutes. That seems to be a running thing this year. Shorter movies, which is nice. Lady Bird is simply a coming-of-age tale about a teenage girl on her journey through grade 12 as she gets set to take on the world. Saoirse Ronan is Lady Bird, and of course she is fantastic. Saoirse Ronan is never not good. She may be the second coming of Meryl Streep. Laurie Metcalf plays her mom. Tracy Letts plays her dad. He's very sweet in this. I always like when he pops up in a movie. But it is Metcalf's performance as the mom which will get all the attention. She's probably the Oscar frontrunner for Best Supporting Actress right now. Uh, she has to be the bad guy in this. She is tough on Lady Bird, but there's also real love there. It's frankly a very realistic portrayal of a daughter-mother relationship, and there are layers to it, which is the sort of thing that elevates a movie like this above other movies. The relationship, really the crux of everything. It's garnished with a lot of other delightful little grace notes and performances. Everything just hits and clicks in a wonderful way. It breezes right through. I suspect in the future, Lady Bird will be a touchstone for coming-of-age movies for teenage girls. The next one on my list might anger some fanboys out there. Some of them want this film removed from canon. My third favorite film of 2017, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Who are you? Something inside me is awake. What do you see? Light. Darkness. 
This is not going to go the way you think. Kylo failed you. I won't. This film debuted December 15th. I liked it a lot. Gave it four couch cushions out of five. I acknowledged in my review it's too long as a, a distracting subplot which could have easily been cut and it wouldn't have hurt the movie at all to take it out. Overall, though, I found it thrilling, staggering visuals, and it brought back my childhood hero, Luke Skywalker. Although he was grumpy Luke Skywalker, and that has a lot of Star Wars diehards upset, to the point where they've taken to Rotten Tomatoes en masse to voice their disgust. Rest assured that I was on the internet within minutes registering my disgust throughout the world. They've helped to push the film to an audience score of 54% at last check versus 92% from critics. It's also worth noting though, the movie got a coveted letter grade of A from CinemaScore, which pulls people as they leave the theater. The people who are upset have succeeded in making some noise, yeah, but I would suggest they just chill out a little bit. I mean, it's hey, if you didn't like it, you didn't like it, but I think writer-director Ryan Johnson has made some bold choices here, and he's taken the saga that we know and love into brave, unexpected, and sometimes emotionally difficult territory. Ultimately, the payoff is significant, and it paves the way for all of the new young heroes in this trilogy to save the day in Episode 9 when it debuts in 2019. Nice. I haven't seen it yet. I'm stoked to see it. Get on with it. I know. And uh, what? Grumpy Luke Skywalker, isn't he like a hermit on an island? Yeah. Like all the other Jedis, like Yoda was, <laughs> like uh, Obi-Wan was when he met him. These guys weren't the most pleasant people to be around from the jump. No, but there's he's Hermitidus a little bit different. He's a little bit different. He looks this. cool. That beard suits him well. Yeah, he looks kind of, he's grizzled. <laughs> he's a grizzled vet. Up next, uh, Jeff Braun's going to get his Keanu on. Yeah. Couch Potatoes year-end review continues in a moment. You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad, he's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes, counting down our favorite movies of 2017. So far, we've looked at Wonder Woman, The Fate of the Furious, T2 Train Spotting, The Florida Project, Get Out, Dunkirk, Spider-Man Homecoming, It, Lady Bird, and Star Wars, The Last Jedi. And now we're on to Jeff Braun's second favorite film of 2017. It's John Wick, Chapter 2. Somebody please get this man a gun. You stabbed the devil in the back. To him, this isn't vengeance. This is justice. You working? Afraid so. Whoever comes, I'll kill them. I'll kill them all. Of course you will. The first John Wick was very straightforward. Keanu Reeves is a shockingly effective hitman. Some dumb gangsters don't know his history and kill his dog when he dismisses them. He exacts his revenge and it is a wonder to behold. Now chapter two, truly almost just as good I thought. Anything bad I have to say about it is small potatoes compared to the good things in the movie. The only real problem is the plot is much more complicated this time. John Wick belongs to this secret society of hitmen which has a lot of club rules and the new movie spends maybe too much time exploring and talking about the rules, which are mostly dumb. The simplicity of that first movie isn't there in that regard. In the first one, his motive's so clear. They killed his dog, so he killed everyone. This time, more convoluted. But 
When the action gets going, it really gets going. It is a ballet of movie violence that is all the more beautiful in its relative simplicity. He just methodically goes from one henchman to the next, taking them out one by one. The kills may be better than the first movie, too. And his fight with Ratman Common, another hitman, I thought was pretty amazing. And they set up Chapter 3, which can't get here soon enough. My second favorite movie of 2017 is one that Jeff briefly alluded to earlier as being his 10th favorite film from the writer of Sicario and Hell or High Water. It's called Wind River. I need emergency assistance. What's your location? The Wind River Reservation. I'm Jane Banner, FBI. Welcome to Wyoming. By yourself? It's just me. That's Corey Lambert. He's the one who found the body. This is a homicide. I knew that girl. She's a fighter. This is about a rookie FBI agent played by Elizabeth Olsen investigating a murder on a remote First Nations reserve. She's joined by a local game tracker played by Jeremy Renner. Now this is the finale of now director Taylor Sheridan's Modern American Frontier Trilogy. As mentioned, he wrote the scripts for Sicario and Hell or High Water, which were both excellent films. And on top of directing Wind River, he also wrote it. Renner and Olsen give wonderful performances in this. Has a solid supporting cast, including John Bernthal, a.k.a. The Punisher on Netflix, Gil Birmingham, Canadian actors Graham Greene and Hugh Dillon also giving nice supporting roles. The movie has gorgeous and haunting cinematography and some frightening and jarring action scenes. And it was also a timely film in Canada as it addresses the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's not an easy film to watch, but it is an excellent one. My initial reaction was four couch cushions out of five, but it's a film that I've thought about a lot since it debuted in August, and I think it might bump it up to four and a half. By the way, Sheridan has written a sequel to Sicario. It's called Sicario Soldado, and the trailer is out now. Before we hear Jeff Bronze, number one... You know, he's excited, he's ready to go, he loves this film, but I'm going to go with my favorite film of 2017. Welcome. Voice activation required. Thor. Access denied. Uh, God of Thunder. Denied. Prince of Asgard. Denied. Strongest Avenger. Let me try. Banner. Welcome, Strongest Avenger. Oh, uh, what? Thor Ragnarok. The third movie about the Marvel Cinematic Universe's version of the Norse God of Thunder, Thor Ragnarok was an absolute delight. The first Thor movie from 2011 was, I think, wonderful. It had some nice drama to it, and director Kenneth Branagh brought a surprising level of humanity to a movie about a Viking from space. It's still one of my top five Marvel films. In 2013, Thor The Dark World arrived, and while I didn't mind it, it was admittedly a little too serious. In Thor Ragnarok, New Zealand director Taika Waititi completely reinvents the character, allowing Chris Hemsworth to showcase his comedic abilities. It was easily Thor's most fun appearance on screen, with amazing visuals which were colorful, imaginative. Some of the scenery was like watching gorgeous paintings come to life. When I finished watching it the first time, I knew I had to go see it again, and I did. And it's not just bells and whistles. Ragnarok adds a couple of great cast members in Kate Blanchett, 
playing one of the best villains we've seen so far in the MCU, the goddess of death, Hela. And then Jeff Goldblum is in it. He plays the Grandmaster. And, of course, the Hulk is in it. Cool. Hulk smash. Who doesn't like watching the Hulk smash? I gave Thor Ragnarok four and a half couch cushions out of five. I love it. My favorite film of 2017. And my favorite movie of the year, a romantic comedy called The Big Sick. I have to tell you something. <laughs> I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? It's okay. We hate terrorists. I'm, still I'm looking for Emily Gardner. She was checked in. You should call her family. Stress it. Yeah. You can play it. You can't rhyme it. You try to find out a word that nobody can rhyme. And Stonehenge. Then... Yeah, see, you would win. Comedian Kumail Nanjiani plays himself in this mostly autobiographical story about he, a young Muslim man from Pakistan, fell in love with Emily, a non-Muslim American woman, and how it affected both their families. It was a non-starter with his devout parents who insisted on an arranged marriage with a Muslim woman. And with her family, it was even trickier as Kumail and Emily briefly break up. She gets very sick and falls into a coma. And that's when he meets her parents. They're played by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. Uh, it's the most perfect casting of the year, those parents. The movie works some kind of magic. It walks this tightrope of tone that has you literally laughing one minute, crying the next, uh, laughing again the minute after that, all in the same scene, and on and on. It's beautiful, it's heartwarming, and it's not blatantly out to jerk the tears from your eyes. It's not sentimental or sappy. The movie just has this amazing flow to it. The director, Michael Showalter, mostly known for being a stand-up comic, does an incredible job of balancing everything, and like I said, it keeps this tone that allows you to laugh and cry and laugh all in the same scene. It got shot out at the Golden Globes, by and large, but if there's any award season justice, it'll get some Oscar nominations. The Big Sick, the best movie of 2017, I gave it 5 out of 5, the full sectional. And that is where we will close the year 2017. We will begin the year 2018 with our January movie preview. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Subscribe to our podcast on Google Play and on iTunes. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. I'm